welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. I'm Colette and I'm with Tom and Paul to take you through the latest media law headlines. We have a highly controversial defamation case rising out of Australia which has recently reached its conclusion, as well as a discussion on anonymity rights for egg and sperm donors. But of course we have to start with the 1st of June 2022 decision by a jury in Virginia who awarded Johnny Depp more than $10 million after finding that his ex-wife Amber Heard had defamed him by describing herself as a victim of domestic abuse in a 2018 newspaper column. Heard was also awarded $2 million for defamatory comments made by Depp's legal team in which she was described as creating a hoax. Legal experts generally expected Depp to lose the case because of the strong free speech protections in the US where public figures pursuing defamation claims have to prove malice. Depp, of course, lost his libel claim against The Sun in the UK in 2020 over very similar allegations. Legal commentators have pointed to two reasons for the different outcomes on each side of the pond. The first is the presence of the jury in the US trial, and the second is the use of so-called Davo tactics. This is common in domestic abuse cases where the accused denies and then attacks and then reverses the victim and offender roles. The strategy turns the tables on the alleged victim, shifting the conversation away from did the accused commit the abuse to is the alleged victim believable. The UK judge dismissed all evidence that wasn't strictly relevant to whether Depp committed assault or not and thereby circumvented the use of Darbo tactics here. However, that evidence was allowed in the US trial, which perhaps explains why the jury reached the conclusion that they did. I think that this is a pretty interesting place to begin our analysis. Who wants to go first? Yes, I think so. Um, We could sit here quite smugly today uh, as uh, English lawyers and legal scholars uh, and quite comfortably say, well, doesn't this just show that the English way of doing things is vastly superior to the American way of doing things in that our judges exclude irrelevant prejudicial evidence because they know uh, how to identify it and that it is wrong to consider it. And um, the American system involving as it does a jury Um, doesn't exclude that kind of evidence. Of course, it would be possible um, for US judges to exclude things from the view of the jury if they wish to do so, and if procedural rules uh, allowed for it. I don't know what the procedural rules around evidence are in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, But um, clearly, the jury did take into account uh, this highly prejudicial um, approach to dealing with Amber Heard. And uh, this, it, 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 it crosses over with what we were saying last time about the social media coverage, because a lot of the social media coverage involved uh, showing Amber Heard uh, on the witness stand looking or being presented as uh, being untruthful, uh, being caught out. Uh, inconsistencies in her evidence, that sort of thing, by um, uh, Depp's lawyers. And this was being juxtaposed with uh, pictures of Depp being um, kind of 
cool and sarky and taking down herds lawyers and that's how that was presented on social media um so the, yeah the, the 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 tactic is certainly one that was deployed and appears to have been deployed um very successfully here by uh, depp's team um it is of course a tactic that is both repugnant uh and which seems not to bear much relation to getting justice um it, it is purely a trial strategy a design for an adversarial system where you're not just behaving in an adversarial fashion you're performing and to me that was one of the big things that made this case different in the u.s is that uh depp and heard were performing for a jury in a way that they were not doing for a judge and of course they are both actors but when it comes down to who is the better more convincing actor it's not terribly surprising that a man who has been recognized on multiple occasions as being an extraordinarily talented actor in johnny depp produced the more convincing performance i'm not remotely surprised by that um but that's to me all it was was performance and we know that because of the English libel judgment, which considered the actual evidence and concluded in short order that he beat his wife. And as I've said repeatedly on the podcast now, that evidence has not changed. One thing that the jury does offer, though, that um, I thought was interesting based on some of the discussions we had around multiple meanings in the last newscast is that juries obviously bring to the table the perceptions of your average citizen. Uh, do you think that there is a role maybe in actually using juries to better understand the multiple meanings and the nuances in defamation cases that follows on from the discussion we had last time? Well, I think that's one of the advantages that we did used to have when we had jury trials. And the, the judge would, in England that is, uh, identify a range of quote-unquote, possible meanings. I identify a range of meanings the jury was permitted to consider, and then the jury would, in the course of its deliberations, select from that range of meanings the meaning that they decided the piece actually had. Um, This was certainly cumbersome and may or may not have resulted in more accurate uh, judgments, but the point that you make, I think, is a very uh, valid one, and it's one I broadly would agree with. took that question of uh, what is uh, the meaning out of the hands of a single person, albeit a highly legally qualified person, and put it in the hands of lay people of the sort that now, under the judge-only system uh, that's been in place since the Defamation Act of 2013 came into force, um, a question that is now only approached by uh, the judge. Uh, trying to put himself into the position or herself into the position of the notional, reasonable reader to imagine what this hypothetical creature might come up with as the main meaning of the statement. Um, The sort of task we're talking about doing Uh, is one that will not feel unfamiliar to the judiciary generally because that trying to work out what the reasonable person would do or think or say in a particular situation is something that crops up quite frequently in our legal system in different bits, particularly of tort law. 
Um, but I do think there's something different about it when we're dealing with meaning, because we're not judging a person's actions. We're judging instead a person's comprehension of a text or of uh, a spoken utterance. And I have, I fully admit, I haven't completely thought through uh, exactly what those differences are, but I have been thinking about it a bit, and I do think there are differences. And I guess if you come to me in six or 12 months, I might have thought about them a bit more. Oh, we'll just wait then. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing about you know, law. You've got to wait. That's a pretty short period. Um, you, know, you could get. I think, um, so our friend, uh, Professor David Rolfe at the University of Sydney, uh, makes a good point in his uh, work that um, the advantage of having a jury trial uh, as, as a, a sort of key feature, as, as the norm of deciding defamation cases, is that it puts at least some pressure on principle to, re- to remain uh, intuitive, um, to stop it becoming uh, esoteric. Um, and I think English law... Um, can certainly be accused of of drifting towards uh, that sort of esoteric uh, nature uh, from time to time. Um, but the the disadvantage, which I think comes through from from this case, is that um, it, it can lead to idiosyncrasy uh, in the in the decisions that uh, arise. Um, the, this case doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, as a distant observer, I wasn't expecting uh, Depp to win. I'm still not clear on why he's won. Um, clearly, the the jury saw something that that um, certainly I can't see. Um, is a jury system better than a, a judicial system? Perhaps it's just a different form of idiosyncrasy, um, replacing one with another. Um, there is a sense, uh, I suppose, of it speaking more clearly to a democracy of sorts, and in that sense being justice, uh, being judged by one's peers uh, as opposed to uh, a judge. Um, but but it certainly feels unsatisfactory um, in this case. Finally, how does it work now with um, referring newspapers referring to Johnny Depp as a wife beater or someone who is guilty of domestic violence in the UK now, now that we have these two conflicting judgments? In the UK, yeah, if you were to uh, publish such a statement in the UK, um, then you're on safe legal ground here in the United Kingdom um, because there is a judgment that entirely supports your position. Um the point at which a publisher of such statements might encounter difficulties is if those statements were also published um, in other jurisdictions and the rules uh, of uh, libel liability in those jurisdictions permitted um, cases to be brought in respect of those publications, notwithstanding that the case has been tried in the UK. Um, Which, ironically... If the geography were reversed, would be the position in the UK that you would be able to bring suit in the UK for something that was published originally in the United States, but which was accessible in the United Kingdom and thus was read by some people in the United Kingdom. Um, So it will depend on other jurisdictions, um, but one would hope uh, that. 
judges in other jurisdictions would uh, see that uh, individuals making comment on a case that actually happened in the United Kingdom and a judgment rendered in that case um, would be making uh, fair and defensible comment on it, even if it were published in another jurisdiction. So my, I guess my general advice would be, if you're going to do that, and we obviously have been doing that on this podcast, so um, that's something that we've been doing and I think we'll continue to do, um, it, make sure to contextualize it and make sure that you, you're talking about the particular case in which that decision was rendered. And that is a safer ground as you're going to be able to be on um, while still discussing the matter. It's it's an interesting footnote, though, isn't it, mm. to uh, the larger debate on slaps, uh, strategic litigation against public participation, because you have American senators jumping up and down uh, over there, claiming that English law uh, is monstrous because uh, it shuts down a legitimate uh, debate uh, or accusations that are made against individuals, and, and isn't like American law. Uh, and yet, here we have an instance of, of the situation being reversed, as Tom says. Well, I wouldn't be at all surprised if the um, uh, Depp versus Heard case now goes on to appeal in the United States. And there seemed to be a degree of consensus in the immediate aftermath amongst American legal commentators that appeal was likely. Um, and I can quite see why, because the verdict seems to me on its face to be incoherent. Um, it was quickly pointed out in the aftermath of the trial that the fact that Depp succeeded in his claim, but that Heard also succeeded in her counterclaim against Depp's lawyer, well, against Depp for the actions of his lawyer, uh, Waltman, I think his name is, um, who accused in uh, the Daily Mail, uh, Amber heard of, I think the phrase was something like roughing up a penthouse in order to uh, hoax an incident of abuse. Um, the jury found that that was defamatory of heard. Now, several commentators that I heard in, in, in the aftermath of this said this seemed on the face to be incoherent. I then heard one legal commentator on CNN try to rationalize it by saying, well, it, it related to a very specific instance of um, uh, a very specific allegation about a particular incident where Heard uh, could not actually be proven to have done this roughing up of the penthouse, and that's why it was defamatory. But that, to me, doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because it's not coherent with what the... with what the jury must logically be finding about Heard as a person. If they have accepted that Heard defamed Depp, then what they are saying is that what Heard said was untrue, that she has invented these allegations of abuse, because it's not a misinterpreting of a punch to the face, is it? It's it's a it's gotta be you made mm. it up. So it's the jury have rejected it. They've decided she is a manipulative liar who is not a victim, but possibly herself even an abuser, um, but certainly not a victim and thus a person who hoaxes these things. Now, if as a jury you have decided that, and Paul and I obviously have deep reservations about that, um, 
But if as a jury you have made that decision that that is who Heard is, why do you then say it is still defamatory of her to say that she roughed up a penthouse to hoax one more incident of abuse? It would just be part of the character you've already identified. Her reputation doesn't get any lower if you say, oh, and she roughed up a penthouse so that it looked like deputy abuser. She was already saying deputy abuser and you already decided she's a liar. So uh, I, I don't understand how that can coherently be said to be defamatory of Heard. Um, it, it, it doesn't make any coherent sense. What it does smack of is the jury doing something very illegal, if you like, which is to say... We preferred Depp's testimony, so he gets 10 million, but we thought Heard was vaguely sympathetic as a character, so we'll give her a bit of money. Um, that's what it seems like. Well, I mean, they're, they're not saying she can have some money. What they're saying is she can have a discount on how much she owes Depp. Well, yes. Not enough, though. There are rumours that uh, she may have to file for bankruptcy because she can't afford what she now owes Depp. Uh, I'm gonna move on to the defamation trial in Australia brought by ex-soldier Ben Robert Smith against three newspapers over a series of reports that he committed war crimes, including murder while on tour in Afghanistan. The hearings so far have lasted for 99 days at an estimated cost of 25 million Australian dollars. Examination of the witnesses reached its conclusion on the 3rd of June 2022. There will now be a short recess before final submissions take place on the 18th of July. The case effectively puts Australia's role in the war in Afghanistan on trial. It follows a 2020 report written after a four-year investigation by the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force, which found that there was credible evidence Australian Special Force soldiers were involved in the murder of 39 Afghan citizens. Criminal charges may still be laid as a result of that report. The case saw serving soldiers testify that they saw their comrades murder innocent people. Three soldiers refused to testify as to what they did in Afghanistan. Two of them, their lawyers told the court, would be admitting to murder if they did so. Witnesses admitted under oath that they remain under active investigation for other war crimes. Others conceded that they drank alcohol from the prosthetic leg taken from a slain man as a trophy of war. This has been a fascinating, albeit very disturbing, case to watch from the sidelines. Obviously, it's not finished and there's not much we can talk about um, until there's a judgment. It's thought that the judgment could take up to a year to be published. But it's worth bringing to listeners' attention, uh, partly because, as I said, it's received very little press publication in comparison to Depp versus Heard. Uh, and partly because of the facts of the case. Um, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a fascinating example of a truth defence being deployed. Who would like to kickstart discussion? Well, there is initially um, the downside of not having a jury trial, right? Because there's no way a jury is going to spend a year of their lives putting together a judgment in a libel case. Um, even if it drags on for a matter of weeks, they will eventually, through sheer force of desire to get back to normal life, come up with a decision. Um, but judges don't 
have to do that. They can take as long as uh, they uh, think it necessary to go through all of the evidence. And in a lawsuit of this size, 100 days, $25 million worth of litigation, there's going to be vast amounts of evidence to pour through. And with uh, Australian libel law being no less technical or complex than our own, you can be sure that this is evidence that the judge will look at in a great deal of detail and take plenty of time over uh, making a decision. This is a case that has not had the mainstream coverage that it ought to have had. It is a far more, uh, well, it's a far more interesting case, but it is a far more potentially impactful case uh, than Depp versus Heard, which is just celebrity gossip, basically, writ large. Um, this is a this is a war crimes trial in all but name, um, in that a person who's been accused by journalists of war crimes, because they think they've uncovered enough evidence to support that claim, is suing to reclaim his reputation. Um, so he maintains very firmly that this is all entirely without uh, credibility. You then have testimony being given in defense of this, and the defense being run is the nuclear defense, the defense of truth, justification defense. Um, evidence being, you've got, you've got testimony from s soldiers who were present at the time of these alleged incidents in the vicinity of the claimant, um, who are refusing to answer at least certain questions um, on the grounds of self-incrimination. So these are people who, it seems, were, according to the allegations, either present or directly involved in the alleged war crimes, who are refusing to testify on the grounds that if they do, they may incriminate themselves for the offences uh, that we've been talking about. Um, so the judge is going to have to look at that and come to a decision uh, as to what that says about the case at hand. Um, they say, cliche time, they say the first casualty of war is the truth. Right. Well, here's, here's a, an opportunity to see whether one casualty of war will be the truth defense. Um, we'll see exactly what becomes of this. Uh, but it's it's fascinating, uh, legally speaking, to, because you don't usually see a truth defense with this amount riding on it in terms of the stakes. I think it's also interesting for what it says about the press and press freedom. Um, the here here we have a, a microcosm, I think, of of uh, a lot of the issues I have uh, at an abstract level with uh, press freedom. Uh, and what what the press does and what it can do, so we might say, well, this is a this is a classic example of the press speaking truth to power, that this is the press, you know, fulfilling its its role as a fourth estate, um, holding uh, here the military accountable uh, for for what it has done for for war crimes, but it does. Uh, beg, I think, deeper questions, if we're prepared to ask those questions, some of them uh, unpleasant, and, and some of them um, are, 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 we have to think of, I think, in abstract terms, um, because we're talking about human lives that have been lost, 
um, potentially lost um, in, innocent uh, victims of, um, of of war crimes. But but for me, the the question is this: if there is credible evidence of wrongdoing on a military campaign, what is the best forum in which to decide what should happen as a consequence of that? Is it a, a judicial or a quasi-judicial uh, environment of the court-martial, or is it the public forum of a newspaper account? Now, for the newspaper, there are um, several interests at stake here, one of which is financial. In publishing this story, um, they surely felt that the income it would generate uh, would uh, was a sufficient reason to publish uh, in spite of any prospective defamation claim. Or they might have thought, well, truth is so important to us that it doesn't matter if this costs us in the long run. You know, this is something that we stand for as a matter of principle. I struggle with uh, this idea, though, that actually if you have discovered war crimes of this severity, the first thing you do is publish a story about it without at least first taking it to the proper authorities. Now, it would be one thing for a newspaper to report that actually what had happened here was the proper judicial system, the court-martialing system had failed, that there was credible evidence, but no outcome had, uh, that no discipline had followed uh, that uh, these um, people who who committed these crimes haven't been punished properly. That that would be that would be uh, a more legitimate means, I think, of whole, of speaking truth to to power. Um, but but here we have, of course, a different standard of proof involved. We have the civil standard and balance of probabilities as against the criminal standard, the criminal standard of beyond reasonable doubt. So here, one of the questions for the judges well, was, is it, more re- is it more likely than not that this information is credible, that these things happened? That, that's the sort of truth defence. Um, as opposed to actually proving beyond all reasonable doubt that actually this uh, soldier in question has committed these atrocities. So I, I, for me, this is an opportunity to think about the, the press press freedom uh, and what it means well we'll of course update listeners when we have a judgment uh, and that these are the kind of themes that we'll be able to discuss in more depth once that comes out uh, for the meantime i just want to finish this newscast with brief a brief mention of a guardian article that came out last week uh, towards the end of may start of june 2022 which spoke of the legal quagmire that leaves 29,725 people born by egg or sperm donation between the 1st of August 1991 and the 1st of April 2005, unable to learn about their parentage because donors were given lifelong anonymity. There are various privacy issues, I guess, that come out of this. Um, Perhaps, Tom, you could develop these a bit more. Yes, so this article caught my attention when I read it because it seems to me that there are privacy interests at stake on on both sides of this uh, this issue. You have uh, adults who donated 
sperm or eggs during that period and who, as a condition of doing so, were granted lifelong anonymity. Um, and you have children born from uh, those sperm and eggs um, who are not entitled at law to discover who their biological parent is uh, on, 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 on one side of that. Um, it's an issue that's no longer causing active problems because since 2005, donors have not had that anonymity. Uh, it's been clear that any children born as a result of the donation will have a right to know who the donor was and thus if they wish to attempt to make contact to make contact and there are lots of stories about people tracking down their biological parents and uh having some sort of uh, a, a re rewarding relationship with them or whatever um the article um if i remember correctly cites in support of the author's view and the author's view is that this anachronism should be removed retrospectively that these individual, these children should be given the right to know who their uh, donor was, um, even between uh, that period of 1991 and 2005. Cites uh, the example of one donor who uh, basically misrepresented himself. Um, he had a genetic defect, which has been passed on to a number of children. Um, I, I, that example seemed to me to be playing on some quite uncomfortable fears about difference, genetic differences. Um, I, it was pointed out this individual was autistic, amongst other things, and, and it seemed to me to be playing on fears and prejudices that were a, a tad unnecessarily emotive. Um, the issue here is one of balancing rights. How do you balance a person's right to uh, keep their uh, anonymity against a child's right to know who their parent is? Um, you have various policy issues that weigh in, uh, uh, that would once have weighed in on the side of anonymity on the basis of, well, if you grant anonymity, that is likely to encourage more people to donate egg and sperm and thus more families to have children as a result of artificial insemination and so forth. Um, and that that would be a good thing. So we, but, but, but the uncomfortable corollary of that is that you are denying a very particular right to a person who at that stage does not yet exist, um, but who is likely and foreseeable to exist uh, at some point in the future. And of all the pieces of information that you would think one might be entitled to know about oneself, one's genetic heritage, you would think, would be fairly close to the top of the list. Um, it's a difficult one. It's a really difficult one. If you if you weigh it up simply as one person's interest against another person's interest, um, I think under a kind of straightforward human rights, that basically just cancels, cancels each other out. Paul, any thoughts? Yeah, so I, I suppose I would, I would approach it differently. Um, not just for the sake of being contrary, but, you know, I do like to disagree with you from time to time. Um, but also just think, thinking about it from the, again, from a sort of, as a thought experiment, thinking about the nature of rights here and, and the right, if we talk about the right of a child to know their their parentage, um, thinking about, well, when does that right crystallise? 
because it strikes me that the, the, the logical conclusion of what we're saying is that the right to know of the parent crystallizes at the point of donation. So the right to know actually predates the existence of the human. The right to know also would predate uh, the right not to be aborted, if we can speak sensibly of such a thing. That strikes me as odd. The other reason it strikes me as odd is that it, it sort of invokes a kind of temporal paradox, I think, in that what, what you're sort of saying is you have a right to know who your uh, parent was, but if we apply a sort of crude but for test here, if the donor, if we take it to be valid that the donor can say, well, um, had the lifelong anonymity not existed, I wouldn't have donated my sperm. What we're then saying is, well, had my anonymity not been pro- um, promised, had it not been guaranteed, you wouldn't have existed. So your right to know actually undoes your right to exist in a very literal sense because I wouldn't have donated my sperm had I known what was going to occur. So you wouldn't have existed. So your right to know is counteracted by your right to exist. I'm interested, Paul, would you put this then in the same category of cases, those ones we hear about where a person is suing their parents for having been born because they find life so intolerable, they do not, they, they, they wish they'd never existed and they never consented to existing in the first place. Would you put it in that category of just... Circular nonsense. Well, it does. There is a sort of circularity to it. I think that that can't be easily squared. If one takes the the idea of of working back to to where the right crystallizes, um, if if I have a right to this genetic information, but I but I simply would not have existed but for the guarantee of anonymity. So if you undo the guarantee, guarantee of anonymity, I disappear in a puff of logic. So I guess uh, to my, two points occur to me in, in, in response where I, I would see this a little differently. Um, the first is that trying to work out at what point in time a right crystallizes is a very interesting thought experiment, but the reality of the situation is the child now exists. We can't get away from the fact that the child exists and the child has uh, certain rights and interests. And I, I, I would not be particularly keen on binding ourselves to the idea that if you can't pinpoint the exact point at which a right emerges, it does not exist. Um, I think there are plenty of things we can't quite work out where they came from, but which we acknowledge now exist. I mean, both Paul and I have been working on for years now on on the the tort of misuse of private information. Nobody knows where on earth that came from or how it can be explained, but we both acknowledge it exists and we have to do something with it. And it has uh, uh, certain attributes. Um, The second point is that if we look at the way that children's privacy rights and children's privacy related interests are dealt with in English law generally, they are often subservient to the interests of some or other adult. 
So we see children's interests being preyed in aid by adult claimants in privacy cases to bolster their chances of getting an injunction, for example. But when cases happen the other way around, such as in the AAA case, the parents' actions end up undermining the child's right to privacy. Well, the child's right to privacy is diminished and the courts accept that. And this has led us to a situation where I think children's rights are often treated very instrumentally by the courts. And if we are going to say that this is a situation in which a particular generation of children's interests have to be subservient to the interests of adult donors who entered into a contractual agreement that involved anonymity, and let's, you know, whilst there was uh, there is today a human rights issue here. For a lot of these cases, it was pre-Human Rights Act. Um, it seems to me we would be instrumentalizing those children's interests even further. And there's something uncomfortable about that. It might be co- it, it, it might not be surprising, given the way that we deal with children's interests. It might even align quite nicely at a formal level with the way that we generally treat children's interests in this country. But it strikes me as one that is not altogether comfortable. And I think that's what the author of the article is trying to get at in a a, a way that probably could have been better presented. Um, I really don't know where I fall on the side of this. I mean, I'm kind of sitting here. You probably get the impression I'm making the case for the children's interests. Um, And and I'm, I'm as intrigued by that as anyone as I'm sat here saying it that that seems to be the side that's kind of intuitively coming out because um, I absolutely see the importance of the privacy interest and I absolutely get Paul's point that, you know, you'll have donors saying, I don't want to uh, donate if I can't have the anonymity, at least you might have had at this point in time. Um, I guess that might be undermined by the fact that since 2005, there has not been anonymity and we've still had donations. Um, but, you know, the particular donor might well not have, have done so at the time. It's a very difficult issue. Um, maybe one that just isn't helped by articles that are written in such emotive terms and which stoke a bit of fear about how awful it would be if there were these other dishonest men going around donating sperm despite the fact they were genetically defective in some way, which... Seems to me necessarily over the top. I think the article itself responds to uh, current discussions around whether the age of being able to learn who your donated parent is should be reduced to birth. So I guess it's kind of situated within that that wider debate, which also raises different issues whether you should have that that right throughout your entire childhood. Yeah. The, the, the... There's definitely there's definitely something here about that you know the human condition, uh, the need for um, role models in the form of, of fathers and mothers and everything else. But but I, I I agree with Tom that one of the difficulties with the article is that it almost speaks in the language product liability, <laughs> and that you know I need to know who where this came from because you know I have a problem and I I've still got my receipt. Uh, and I want to take it back. Well, here's an interesting thought experiment. What uh, this is just occurring to me as 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 we sit here. If you have two individuals, man and woman, right, who through the traditional act produce a biological child, 
but then there's a breakup and let's say the man leaves and for whatever reason the woman decides not to tell the child who her father is and the father makes no effort to contact the child does the child have a right to compel the mother at some point to disclose the identity of the father Let's say it's or not registered it? on the birth certificate for whatever reason. Right. Okay. Right? Fine. Um, yeah. So it's thought experiment. There's no other way of finding out other than to compel the mother in some way by court order to disclose the information. Would the child have that right against the mother? That's a thought. It's probably not a thought experiment to answer right now on a newscast that I've just posed to you, but it's maybe one to think about. It'd be a good one for a seminar, wouldn't it? Yeah. Which Which route would you take? That's one for any... Uh, undergraduate or postgraduate students listening to uh, ponder in their own time answers on a postcard or on twitter <laughs> tweet us with what you think tweet us what you think oh well maybe that's a, a good place to wrap wrap up then today's episode uh, with a little homework for you all um thank you very much Sean Paul, for your brilliant insights as always thanks colette thanks colette as ever, follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast, and we will be back with more newscasts again in the weeks to come. Thanks very much. <laughs>